Seventh Adventure, Part One of Master Flea. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Bob Neufeld. Master Flea by E. T. A. Hoffman. Seventh Adventure, Part One. Hostile snares of the allied microscopists, and their continued stupidity. New temptations of Mr. Peregrine Tease, and new perils of Master Flea. Rose Lemmerhirt, the decisive dream, and conclusion of the tale. Although we are wholly deficient in any certain information respecting the result of the battle in Leuwenhoek's chamber, yet we cannot suppose otherwise than that the microscopists with the help of george pepusch had obtained a complete victory over the hostile confederates it had else been impossible that the old schwammer had returned so friendly and contented as he really did with the same glad face schwammer or rather mr john schwammerdam came the following morning to peregrine who was still in bed and earnestly conversing with his protege master flea upon seeing this visitor peregrine did not fail putting the microscope glass into the pupil of his eye after many long and tedious excuses for his early visit schwammerdam at last took his place on the bed positively refusing to let peregrine rise and put on his dressing-gown in the strangest phrases he thanked his landlord for the great civilities he had experienced which it seems consisted in his having been received as a lodger and also in that mr tyss had allowed his household to be increased by the addition of a young female who was sometimes too loud and vivacious but the greatest favour shown by mr peregrine and not without some self-sacrifice was in his having effected a reconciliation between him, Schwammerdam, and his old friend Antony von Leuwenhoek. In fact, as Schwammerdam went on to say, both hearts had inclined to each other at the moment when they were attacked by the amateur and the barber, and had to protect Dorje Elverdink from those monsters. The serious reconciliation of the microscopists had soon after followed. Leuwenhoek had perceived, as well as Schwammerdam, the paramount influence which Peregrine had over both of them, and the first use which they made of their renewed friendship was to consider in unison the strange horoscope of Mr. Tease, and as far as possible to interpret it. "'What my friend Leuwenhoek could not do alone,' continued the microscopist, "'was affected by our united powers.' and thus this was the second experiment which in spite of all the obstacles opposed to us we undertook with the most splendid results the short-sighted fool lisped master flea who sat upon the pillow close to peregrine's ear he still fancies that the princess gamahe was restored to life by him a pretty life indeed is that to which the awkwardness of the two microscopists has condemned the poor thing my dear friend continued schwammerdam who had the less heard master flea as he had just then begun to sneeze loudly my dear friend you are particularly chosen by the spirit of the creation a pet child of nature for you possess the most wonderful talisman 
or, to speak more correctly and scientifically, the most splendid Tzilmanaha, or Tilzimot, that was ever fed by the dew of heaven, and has sprung from the lap of earth. It is an honour to my art that I, and not Leuwenhoek, have discovered that this lucky talisman sleeps for a time, till a certain constellation enters, which finds its centre-point in your worthy person. With yourself, my dear friend, something must and will happen, which, in the moment the power of the talisman awakes, may make that waking known to you. Let Leuwenhoek have told you what he will, it must all be false, for in regard to that point he knew nothing at all until I opened his eyes. Perhaps he tried to frighten you, my dear friend, with some terrible catastrophe, for I know he likes to terrify people without reason. But trust to me, Mr. Tease, who have the highest respect for you, and swear it to you most solemnly, you have nothing to fear. I should like, however, to learn whether you do not as yet feel the presence of the talisman, and what you think of the matter altogether. At these last words Schwammerdam eyed his host as keenly as if he would pierce his deepest thoughts but, of course, he did not succeed so well in that as Peregrine, with his microscopic glass, by means of which the latter learned that it was not so much the united war with the amateur and the barber as the mysterious horoscope that had brought about the reconciliation of the microscopists. It was the possession of the mighty talisman that both were striving after. In regard to the mysterious lines in the horoscope of Peregrine, Schwammerdam remained in as vexatious ignorance as Leuwenhoek, but he fancied the clue must lie within Peregrine, which would lead to the discovery of the mystery. This clue he now sought to fish out of the novice, and then rob him of the inestimable treasure before he knew its value. He was convinced this talisman was equal to that of the wise Solomon, since, like that, it gave him who possessed it the perfect dominion over the kingdom of the spirits. Peregrine paid like with like, himself mystifying Schwammerdam, who thought to mystify him. He contrived to answer so dexterously, in such figurative speeches, that the microscopist feared the initiation had already begun, and that soon the mystery would be revealed which neither he nor Leuwenhoek had been able to unravel. Schwammerdam cast down his eyes, hemmed, and stammered a few unintelligible words. He was really in a bad plight, and his thoughts were all in confusion. The devil! What's this? Is this Peregrine who speaks to me? Am I the learned Schwammerdam, or an ass? In despair he at last collected himself, and began— but to come to something else, most respected Mr. Tease, and, as it seems to me, something much more agreeable, according to what Schwammer now went on to say, both he and Leuwenhoek had perceived, with great pleasure, the strong inclination which Deutsche Elverdink had conceived for him. If they had both formerly been of a different opinion, each believing that Deutsche should stay with himself and not think of love and marriage, yet they had now both come to a better conviction. They fancied that they read in Peregrine's horoscope he positively must take Deutsche Elverdink for his wife, 
as the greatest advantage in all the conjunctures of his life, and, as neither doubted for a moment that he was equally enamoured of her, they had looked upon the matter as fully settled. Tramadam, moreover, was of opinion that Peregrine was the only one who, without any trouble, could beat his rivals out of the field, and that the most dangerous opponents, namely the amateur and the barber, could avail nothing against him. Peregrine found, from Schwammerdam's thoughts, that both the microscopists actually imagined that they read in his horoscope the inevitable necessity of his marriage with Dorcha. It was to this supposed necessity only they yielded, thinking to draw the greatest gain from the apparent loss of the little one, namely, by getting possession of Mr. Teese and his talisman. But it may be easily supposed how little faith he must have in the science of the two microscopists, when neither of them was able to solve the centre-point of the horoscope. He did not, therefore, at all yield to that pretended conjunction, which conditioned the necessity of his marriage with Gamahe, and found no difficulty whatever in declaring positively that he announced her hand in favour of his best friend, George Pepusch who had older and better claims to the fair one, and that he would not break his word upon any condition. Schwammerdam raised his green eyes, which he had so long cast down, stared vehemently at Peregrine, and grinned with the cunning of a fox, as he said, if the friendship between him and Pepusch were the only scruple which kept him from giving free scope to his feelings, this obstacle existed no longer. Pepusch had perceived, although slightly touched with madness, his marriage with Dorcha was against the stars, and nothing could come from it but misery and destruction. He had therefore resigned all his pretensions, declaring only that with his life he would protect Gamahe, who could belong to no one but his bosom friend Tis, against the awkward dolt of an amateur and the bloodthirsty barber. A cold shudder ran through Peregrine, when he perceived, from Schwammerdam's thoughts, that all was true which he had spoken. Overpowered by the strangest and the most opposite feelings, he sank back on his pillow and closed his eyes. The microscopist pressed him to come down himself and hear from Deutsch's mouth, from George's, the present state of things, and then took his leave with as much ceremony as he had entered. Master Flea, who sat the whole time quietly on the pillow, suddenly leaped up to the top of Peregrine's nightcap. There he raised himself up on his long hind legs, wrung his hands, stretched them imploringly to heaven, and cried out in a voice half-stifled with tears, "'Oh, woe to poor me! I already thought myself safe, and now comes the most dangerous trial!' What avail me the courage, the constancy of my noble patron? I surrender myself. All is over. Why, said Mr. Teese, in a faint voice, why do you lament so on my nightcap, my dear master? Do you fancy that you alone have to complain, that I myself am not in the unhappiest situation in the world? For my whole mind seems broken up and I neither know what to do nor which way to turn my thoughts. 
but do not fancy my dear master i am foolish enough to venture near the rock upon which all my resolutions might be shipwrecked i shall take care not to follow schwammerdam's invitation and to avoid seeing the alluring dorje elverdink in reality said master flea after he had taken his old post upon the pillow by peregrine's ear in reality i am not sure that i ought not to advise you to go at once to schwammerdam's however destructive it may appear to myself it seems to me as if all the lines of your horoscope were running quicker and quicker together and you yourself were upon the point of entering the red centre well let the dark destiny have decreed what it will i plainly perceive even a master flea cannot escape such a conclusion and it is as simple as useless to expect my safety from you go then take her hand deliver me to slavery and that all may happen as the stars will it without any interference make no use of the microscopic glass formerly master flea your heart seems stout your mind firm and now you have grown so faint-hearted you may be as wise as you will but you have no good idea of human resolution and at all events rate it too meanly once more i will not break my word to you and that you may perceive how fixed my determination is of not seeing the little one again i will now rise and betake myself as i did yesterday to the bookbinders oh peregrine cried master flea the will of a man is a frail thing a passing air will break it how immense is the abyss lying between what man wills and what really happens many a life is only a constant willing and many a one from pure volition at last does not know what he will you will not see dorte elverdink and yet who will answer for it that you do not see her in the very moment of your declaring such a resolution strange enough the very thing really happened which master flea had prophesied peregrine arose dressed himself and faithful to his intention would have gone to the bookbinder in passing schwammerdam's chamber the door was wide open and he knew not how it happened he stood leaning on schwammerdam's arm close before dorje elverdink who sent him a hundred kisses and with her silvery voice cried out joyfully good morning my dear peregrine george pepusch too was there looking out of the window and whistling he now flung the window too with violence and turned round ah he exclaimed as if he had just then seen peregrine ha look you come to see your bride that's all in order and any third person would only be in the way i too will take myself off but let me first tell you my good friend peregrine that george pepusch scorns every gift which a compassionate friend would fling to him as if he were a beggar cursed be every sacrifice i will have nothing to thank you for take the beautiful gamaheh who so warmly loves you but take care the thistles a do not take root and burst the walls of your house 
George's voice and manner bordered upon brutality, and Peregrine was filled with vexation, when he saw how much his whole conduct was mistaken. Without concealing his disgust, he said, "'It never has entered into my head to cross you in your path, but the madness of jealousy speaks out of you, or you would see how innocent I am of all you have been brooding in your own soul.' Do not ask of me to kill the snake which you have been nourishing in your breast for your own torment. Learn, too, I gave you no alms, I made you no sacrifice in giving up the fair one, and with her perhaps the greatest blessing of my life. Other and higher duties, an irrevocable promise, compelled me to it. Papouche, in the wildest wrath, raised his clenched hand against his friend when Gamaheh sprang between them, and catching Peregrine's arm, exclaimed, "'Let the foolish thistle go! He has nothing but nonsense in his brain, and, as is the way with thistles, is surly and obstinate without well knowing what he means. You are mine, and remain mine, mine own dearest Peregrine!' Thus saying, the little one drew Peregrine upon the sofa, and without farther ceremony, seated herself upon his knees. Papouche, after having sufficiently gnawed his nails, ran wildly out of the door. Dressed again in the fairy dress of tissue, she appeared as lovely as ever. Peregrine felt himself streamed through by the electric warmth of her body, and yet, amidst it all, a cold, mysterious shudder thrilled through him like the breathing of death. For the first time he thought that he saw something singular and lifeless deeply seated in her eyes, while the tone of her voice, nay, even the rustling of her dress, betrayed a strange being who was never to be trusted. It fell heavily upon his heart that, when she had spoken her real thoughts, she had been in this same silver tissue. He knew not why he should fancy anything menacing in it yet the idea of this dress was intimately blended with that of the supernatural, as a dream unites the most heterogeneous things, and all passes for absurd, the deeper connection of which we are unable to comprehend. Far from wounding the fair one with a suspicion which was perhaps false, Peregrine violently suppressed his feelings, and only waited for a favourable opportunity of freeing himself and escaping from the snake of paradise. At last Dorcha said, "'How is it, my sweet friend? You seem so cold and insensible to-day. What have you got in your head, my life?' "'I have a headache,' replied Peregrine, as indifferently as he was able. "'Headache, whims, magrims, nothing else, my sweet child. I must go into the open air, and all will be over in a few minutes. Besides, I am called away by a particular business. It is all invention, exclaimed Gamahe, starting up hastily. But you are a malicious monkey that must be tamed. Peregrine was glad when he found himself in the open street, but as to Master Flea, he was quite extravagant in his joy, tittering and laughing incessantly in Peregrine's neckcloth, and clapping together his forepaws till they rang again. This merriment of his little protégé was somewhat troublesome to Mr. Tease, 
as it disturbed him in his meditations, and he begged of him to be quiet, for many grave people had already glanced at him with looks of reproach, fancying it was he who tittered and laughed and played such foolish pranks in the open streets. "'Fool that I was!' exclaimed Master Flea, persisting in the ebullitions of his extravagant joy. "'Fool that I was, to doubt of the victory where no battle was needed! Why, you had conquered in the moment where even the death of your beloved could not shake your resolution. Let me shout, let me rejoice, for all must deceive me if a bright morning sun do not soon arise, which will clear up every mystery.' On Peregrine's knocking at the bookbinders, a soft female voice cried, "'Come in!' He opened the door, and a young girl, who was alone in the room, came forward, and asked him in a friendly manner what he wanted. She was about eighteen years old, rather tall than short, and slim, with the finest proportions. Her hair was of a bright chestnut color, her eyes were of a deep blue and her skin seemed to be a blended web of lilies and roses. But more than all this were the purity and innocence that sat upon her brow, and showed themselves in all her actions. When Peregrine gazed on the gentle beauty, it seemed to him as if he had been hitherto lying in bonds which a benevolent power had loosened, and the angel of light stood before him. But his enamoured gaze had confounded the maiden, she blushed deeply, and, casting down her eyes, repeated more gently than at first, "'What does the gentleman want?' With difficulty Peregrine stammered out, "'Pray, does the bookbinder Lemmerhirt live here?' Upon her replying that he did, but that he was now gone out upon business, Peregrine talked confusedly of bindings which he had ordered, of books which Lemmerhirt was to procure for him till at last he came somewhat more to himself, and spoke of a splendid copy of Ariosto, which was to have been bound in red morocco with golden filleting. At this it was as if a sudden electric spark had shot through the maiden. She clasped her hands, and with tears in her eyes exclaimed, "'Then you are Mr. Tease?' At the same time she made a motion as if she would have seized his hand but suddenly drew back, and a deep sigh seemed to relieve her full breast. A sweet smile beamed on her face, like the lovely glow of morning, and she poured forth thanks and blessings to Peregrine for his having been the benefactor of her father and mother, and not only for this, no, for his generosity, his kindness, the manner of his making presents to the children, and spreading joy and happiness amongst them. She quickly cleared her father's armchair of the books, bound and unbound, with which it was loaded, wheeled it forward, and pressed him to be seated, and then presented to him the splendid Ariosto with sparkling eyes, well knowing that this masterpiece of bookbinding would meet with Peregrine's approbation. Mr. Tease took a few pieces of gold from his pocket, which, the maiden seeing, hastily assured him that she did not know the price of the work and therefore could not take any payment. Perhaps he would be pleased to wait a few minutes for her father's return. It seemed to Peregrine as if the unworthy metal melted into one lump in his hand, and he pocketed the gold again, much faster than he had brought it out. 
Upon his seating himself mechanically in the broad armchair, the maiden reached after her own seat, and from instinctive politeness he jumped up to fetch it, when, instead of the chair, he caught hold of her hand, and on gently pressing the treasure, he thought he felt a scarcely perceptible return. "'Puss, puss, what are you doing?' suddenly cried Rose, breaking from him, and picking up a skein of thread, which the cat held between her forepaws, beginning a most mystical web. Peregrine was in a perfect tumult, and the words, O oh, princess, escaped him without his knowing how it happened. The maiden looked at him in alarm, and he cried out in the softest and most melancholy tone, My dearest young lady. Rose blushed, and said with maiden bashfulness, My parents call me Rose. Pray do the same, my dear Mr. Tease, for I, too, am one of the children to whom you have shown so much kindness, and by whom you are so highly honoured. Rose, cried Peregrine, in a transport, he could have thrown himself at her feet, and it was only with difficulty that he restrained himself. Rose now related, as she sat quietly on with her work, how the war had reduced her parents to distress and how since that time she had lived with an aunt in a neighbouring village till a few weeks ago, when upon the death of the old lady she had returned home. Peregrine heard only the sweet voice of Rose, without understanding the words too well, and was not perfectly convinced of his being awake, till Lemmerhirt entered the room, and gave him a hearty welcome. Soon after the wife followed with the children, and as thoughts and feelings are strangely blended in the mind of man, it happened now that Peregrine, even in the midst of all his ecstasy, suddenly recollected how the sullen Pepouche had blamed his presence to this very family. He was particularly delighted to find that none of the children had made themselves ill by his gifts, and the pride with which they pointed to a glass case, where the toys were shining, proved that they looked upon them as something extraordinary, never perhaps to recur. The thistle in his ill-humour, was quite mistaken. "'Oh, Pepouche,' said Peregrine to himself, "'no pure beam of love penetrates thy distempered mind.' In this Peregrine again met something more than toys and sugar-plums. Lemmerhirt approached Peregrine, and began to talk in an undertone of his rose, elevating her, in the fullness of his heart, into a perfect miracle. What gave him the most delight was that Rose had an inclination for the noble art of bookbinding, and in the few weeks that she had been with him had made uncommon advances in the decorative parts, so that she was already much more dexterous than many an oaf of an apprentice, who wasted gold in Morocco for years, and set the letters all awry, making them look like so many drunken peasants staggering out of an alehouse. In the exuberance of his delight, he whispered to Peregrine quite confidentially, "'It must out, Mr. Tease, I can't help it. Do you know that it was my rose who gilded the Ariosto?' Upon hearing this, Peregrine hastily snatched up the book, as if securing it before he was robbed of it by an enemy. Lemmerhair took this for a sign that Peregrine wished to go, and begged of him to stay a few minutes longer and this it was that reminded him at last of the necessity of tearing himself away. He hastily paid his bill, 
and set off home, dragging along the heavy quartos, as if they had been some treasure. End of the Seventh Adventure Part One